Welcome to the Better Questions Podcast. This episode is our interview with our guest, Dr. Chris Keith, uh, which is somebody that Chris actually had as a professor in his undergraduate studies. And so, Chris, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to introduce Dr. Keith for our listeners. No one's buying that Chris was a college student. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, when I was in Bible college at Lincoln Christian University, Dr. Keith was one of my professors that I got to take a lot of classes with, and he was one of my favorite teachers that I've ever had. And so I was really excited to get to talk to him. He no longer works at Lincoln. Now he's the research professor of New Testament and early Christianity at St. Mary's. And he has done a ton of work on uh, historical Jesus and a lot of stuff with the Gospels and something really fancy sounding called social memory theory, which we'll talk about some in the podcast. Yeah, this was a this was a really great episode. It's it's kind of a long one. I mean, I don't know how the edit is going to shake out, uh, and we even had some technical difficulties in there. But I really enjoyed it. Like he was really engaged with us. He was, I mean, as a teacher, he was um, just really open to answering a lot of our questions, and uh, it was just really enjoyable. Also. For our podcast listeners who aren't watching the video, I have to throw Andrew under the bus again, like again? I always do. Uh, while Chris was talking just now, he knocked up against the TV that we have displaying Chris, and it was just, I just got a chuckle out of it. I thought you would enjoy knowing that if you're not watching the video. What? You're so unprofessional. <laughs> there, there are ways that later you could have edited to where it was just Chris's face where you'd never see me bump into it, but no, you just had to make sure. Hey, that whatever everyone gets, knew. Whatever gets the watches. I man. guarantee you're gonna edit this to where, like, while Chris is talking, it's gonna zoom in on my elbow as I'm like hitting it, and then you're gonna put like a remix song over it where it just goes back and forth, like. Hey, man, do you really think people are listening to this for our like eloquent speech and our Bible knowledge? Look, half the people who click this link have already like closed out of YouTube and are just gone. So if you're new to the Better Questions podcast, we're all about taking a question from life or faith, talking about how that might be misguided, and uh, then trying to find a better question or a better conversation. And so if you're interested in that, please consider subscribing to the podcast or to the YouTube channel. But uh, before we go any farther, uh, here is our interview with Dr. Chris Keith, and we're talking about answer we're talking about the question are the gospels historically reliable sorry take it away Uh, well, today we have the privilege of talking with one of my former professors when I was at Bible College, uh, Dr. Chris Keith. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, would you mind just doing our listeners a quick favor and just kind of introducing yourself to them, give them a little bit about who you are and kind of your work? 
Yeah, I'm a research professor of New Testament and early Christianity at St. Mary's University, Twickenham. Uh, it's in London, England. And after being on campus for three years uh, in 2015, my family and I moved back. I reside full-time now in Kentucky. We have uh, PhD students in the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, that I supervise, and uh, I'm still the director of a research center there, so I go back and forth for conferences and whatnot. Uh, the I've been there for for several years and uh, have published uh, in, I mean, I know this episode is going to be about historical Jesus studies, so I've written a book on the literacy of the historical Jesus and then wrote a related volume on uh, the controversy narratives, which is where Jesus obviously gets in, in arguments with other teachers of his day. So, um, And I've written quite a bit on um, uh, methodology in historical Jesus studies and uh, how we go about making, how scholars go about making decisions about the historical Jesus and how, to treat, how they treat the Gospels uh, in the midst of that. Uh, and so those, those have probably been the contributions I've made that are most pertinent to uh, what we talk about today. The, the, the project I'm about to finish right now has nothing to do with the historical Jesus. So, so if, I, if I disappoint anybody, it's because my head's not there right now. But I always like talking about the historical Jesus, so it shouldn't be too much of a problem. So of all the different areas that you could be really involved in in biblical studies, what got you really interested in that category? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a great question uh, because... Uh, I made a conscious decision when I was doing my PhD not to be involved with historical Jesus studies. I thought that I, I, I thought that it was really really boring, and uh, nothing new had really been done there. And so I went in a completely different direction for my doctoral work. But my doctoral work was on the story of the woman caught in adultery, and specifically the fact that uh, Jesus there writes in the ground, and that's the only place in any first century. Uh, Jesus traditions where Jesus is said to write, and I was really intrigued by that and interested in how that related to how that story about Jesus and the adulteress got placed into the Gospel of John. And uh, a lot of that book dealt with um, literacy in Jesus and portrayals of Jesus as as literate uh, in antiquity. And I realized that I had most of the research already done for a book on whether Jesus really was literate. Because whenever I told people what I was working on, that's all they really cared about, was whether he really was literate. Uh, and I just kept saying, well, that's not really what I'm writing about. But uh, I realized I had most of the, the, the work done for a book on that. And um, and so I, I decided to do that as my second book. Uh, the part that I had not done uh, was a historical Jesus methodology stuff. And what I realized very quickly was, when I was working on my master's thesis, I had used a theory called social memory theory that deals with how tradition functions, how, how any given group brings the past to bear upon the present. And this particular methodological approach really shaped what I thought tradition was, including the Jesus tradition and how it functioned. And that those assumptions were just in stark kind of contrast to the way that historical Jesus studies um, at the time treated the gospel tradition, the, the, the stories about Jesus. Uh, and so I ended up having to write a bunch uh, of methodological stuff kind of to justify why I wasn't going to do it the way that it tri typically gets done. Uh, and so this is a long way to answer the question, Chris, but 
I got into it basically because I wanted to write this book on whether Jesus could read or write. Um, but when I got into making decisions about the historical Jesus, I realized that I was going—I was going to go about it a way that was very much uh, kind of, at the time at least, very much against the grain in historical Jesus studies. So I kind of had to justify that. You know, I never really thought when Jesus writes on the ground there to think maybe he couldn't write, and maybe everyone just dropped their stones because they were like, "This guy can't even like write anything legible." <laughs> and they're just like, we're done with this guy. As part of my work, I cataloged all the various different interpretations of that text. And at the time, I came up with, I think, about 48 different ones. And there are a lot of... Uh, his, uh, Jesus movies love to play with this. You know, they have him... Mm-hmm. There's one old movie that has him writing in, like, this mixture of Hebrew and Greek. And then, like, the sand washes over it, and it appears in English. And it's, like, their sins and stuff like that. So they they love to, you know, creatively kind of imagine what he could have been writing it'd be great if like you see from one angle him writing the, like really seriously in the dirt and then it cuts to it and it's just like a stick figure just like this like child strong yeah just like tic-tac-toe i'm just trying to think about which thing what i'm gonna say to you <laughs> it needs to be really good <laughs> yeah yeah well that was one of the the arguments was that he was just doodling that he was he was, <laughs> just, he was doing like la da 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 i mean if jesus is human that's a very human thing to do <laughs> yeah don't you know the adulteress is sitting there like, ah, uh, this is kind of been serious for me. Could you get out of the sand? <laughs> oh, man. Well, you know, yeah. I've, I found it interesting. You said that as you were working on some of that stuff, one of the questions people kept asking was, well, could he read and write? Like, that was the only question that mattered. And I feel like that's kind of reflective of the questions most people bring to the Gospels is like, the most important question is, well, did this really happen like historically, whatever we mean by that, in the way that it's written? And and I guess I just kind of wanted to start by asking, um, like, why, why do you think that's everyone's primary concern? And should it be the primary question that we're asking? Uh, well, let me take them in reverse. Uh, depending on what you mean when you ask it, uh, I would answer that last question differently. Uh, so in one sense, no, it's not a very good question. If what you mean is, are the Gospels historically reliable? Uh, this concept, I really hate the concept of reliability. Uh, and and the, the whole idea that, you know, we can prove X, Y, Z, or piece of the Jesus story is reliable. Uh, it's, n- it's not that I, I fault anyone for wanting to think about it that way. Of course, naturally, th- th- those of us who are invested in who Jesus was as a human being are going to wonder these types of things. And, uh, and we all know how legends work and everything, so, so it's, it's a natural question to ask. But what I don't like is this assumption that if we can prove that one piece of the Gospels is reliable, we can turn around and say, well, they're all, it, the whole thing is reliable. You know, it, the, the whole thing. And what we mean by reliable is actually, it me, what, what people tend to mean is it meets my historiographical standards. If I could somehow get a video camera back there, I could prove that this is what really happened. Right. And that right there is, I think, the really poor question 
to ask of the Gospels. Because it's, it, it's not just a poor question, it's an egocentric question. It's asking the Gospels to answer our questions. But those texts weren't written to answer our questions, uh, and including meet our historiographical standards. They, those weren't the historiographical standards of the day, and they weren't even trying to meet, that, meet those uh, standards. So uh, it's, it, is, it is a poor question, in my opinion, because it also it kind of assumes that that's the only game that the Gospels are interested in playing. Like, the only thing that really matters is whether this really happened. Well, what happens if you don't actually get an answer on whether it really happened? And I, and I think this is the case. I think there's there's parts of the gospel, the, the Jesus story, where yeah, that the best explanation for for why they thought that is because it really happened. There are other things where um, I don't think we get answers to question to to those questions uh, whether X Y Z really happened. So I think there's a sleight of hand that happens when people talk about the reliability. Of the Gospels, like I, if 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 I can prove, you know, for example, Jesus studies is is full of people with all kinds of different faith commitments and none. All of us, to my knowledge, that are serious historical Jesus scholars, would affirm that Jesus really did die on the cross uh, in Jerusalem sometime around Passover, uh, and so. When we ask the question, well, why did the gospel authors think this all right, or claim this, which I think is the better question to ask, not are the gospels reliable, why did the authors think this? All right? Why did they think that he was crucified? The most likely answer to that is because he really was crucified. All right? But if we turn around and ask that question to a different piece of the gospel, say, why did they think he was transfigured? Or why did they think... Um, that bodies came up out of the ground and were seen walking around Jerusalem, which Matthew says. These are much, <laughs> it's a much different question to answer than the question about the crucifixion. Uh, and so it's not kind of, the thing that, what I'm trying to get to is, the, the question, are they reliable, pretends like it's a zero-sum game. Either it's all the way in or it's not. And that's just not, that's not the way that it is. It's not the way that our knowledge of those things works, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. And uh, to even drill down further on that, um, you know, today we live in this culture that's just saturated in like CNN. And uh, as much as we may not even realize it as, uh, you know, people of faith, science and the scientific method has, since the Enlightenment, really like influenced the way we think. We want facts. We want the camcorder lens of exactly what happened. We look at history like, you know, that the chief concern is truth and reliability and uh, that it actually historically happened. And my question to you then, though, is did the gospel writers understand history in that same way that we do? And if not, how did they understand it? Well, that's an easy one to answer and that it's absolutely not. They didn't. They didn't understand it the exact way that we do. Now, that's not to say that they didn't care about whether things really happened or they didn't think that, that they didn't you know, express opinions on whether certain things really happened and they didn't make historical claims. They did all of those things. They just didn't do them in the same register as we do, and they didn't do it for the same purposes. A really great example for, of this 
in answering your second question, is the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is up front, that it cares about the truth. Um, it, the, the Gospel of John is the only place where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, but what does John think about what really happened? If you ask the Gospel of John what really happened, um, it's he has probably, uh, now this is, I would part way with most historical Jesus scholars on this, I actually think the Gospel of John is probably the most sophisticated Jesus book we have in terms of historiography, because it's the place, it's the one place in the first century Gospels where the author is very purposeful about saying, X thing happened when we were walking around with Jesus, but we later thought about it in a completely different way. So the distance between what what's happening at the time and what the author thinks about later when reflecting on this and writing his gospel from another perspective, that's actually a narrative theme in the gospel of John. Now the other, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do this in their own ways as well. But for John, if you think about it, like in John 2, when Jesus uh, has the temple saying that the narrator, or the author of the gospel of John outright says, uh, he was talking about his body, but we didn't know it at the time. We didn't know that until later, after the resurrection. And the, and John also has this theme of the paraclete that helps you and re, and, and brings you into all truth and helps you remember. Um, and so if you ask John what really happened, it wasn't what they experienced at the time. It was what they later came to believe about that on the basis of their experience of the resurrection. So John... He is interested in what really happened it, from his perspective, but it's, off, it's often a foil for what he considers the truth of the situation to be. Right. And then to follow that up, because we're using John as an example, I, I love those examples you just gave, but it brings up the question in my mind of, well, uh, John is also one of the most symbolic gospels, and it also uses a lot of... Um, repetition with specific use of the number seven and so part of my follow-up question is um if if john really let's say like designed the way he told this story to include those symbols and to include some of that intentional use of of numbers and repetition how does that affect its um, historical accuracy and what does it mean if we interpret that to say, well, he might have changed the order of some events or he may have added or taken things away to make it fit with his his symbols? Well, again, what, what it comes back to is what you mean by historical accuracy. Uh, for him, that is historically accurate. And, and, and all the time, a lot of times in, in conservative circles, people think that you're, you're being fast and loose, loose with language when you start when scholars start talking like this. But it's simply the reality that what he thinks about historical truth involves those symbols. That's what expresses truth. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what you have in mind with number seven, but certainly he has stuff like the Jewish festivals. You know, Jesus stands in the middle of festivals and says and makes I am statements that seem to indicate right. that he thinks that in some way, you know, Jesus is standing vis-a-vis -vis this festival uh, indicates what the truth of who Jesus is. In contrast, John will explicitly tell us in chapter 12, he does it a couple other places as well, the disciples did not understand at the time. He outright says, 
they did not get it when they were standing right next to him. It was only later that they actually understood what was going on. So for him, that the theological interpretation is historical accuracy. That, that is what's historically accurate. That is what's truth. Um, and what they experienced when they were standing next to Jesus, in many ways, uh, they, did, they didn't understand it. And it was, I mean, I don't... To a certain extent, you could say that from the author's perspective, it's misleading because they didn't realize they, you know, mm-hmm. they think Je- they think Jesus is talking about um, the temple when he says something. Oh no, actually, what he's talking about is his body and the resurrection. Right. You know, or for example, when the, some of the disciples walk away because Jesus says he makes statements that sound cannibalistic. Right, you're gonna right. drink my blood. You're gonna eat my body. And, and of course, people are like, man, all right, I'm out. <laughs> you know, I, the free meals were all right, but I'm gone on this one. Uh, the, you know, from the author's perspective, did they hear him correctly when he when they heard him say something about eating his body and, and drinking his blood? From the author of John's perspective, yeah, they heard that correctly. But the, but was that his was it accurate? Was it was true? No, it was actually Eucharistic language, or however you want to talk about it. But it, but it was, it wasn't cannibalistic from the author of John's perspective. So, uh, a lot of times when conversations about the historical accuracy of the Gospels, the, the conversations usually been towards people taking similar events in each Gospel and trying to like line them up chronologically and like running into maybe some tension or conflict or maybe just like other general things about the gospels showing how, well, Luke says this and Matthew puts it this way. And then there just becomes this whole argument about like, see, they can't even agree, which leads me to ask you kind of like reshaped the term historical accuracy or liability. So what are the gospels and the gospel writers trying to do? Like how did they see their writing? Well, John, John tells us, Straight up at the end of chapter 20, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. He's not trying to he's not trying to give you what, you know, you know, a, a strict chronology. That's not to say that he's not interested in chronology, but he's not trying. You know, we have to remember these aren't these texts are written in a context where there's no such thing as like a county courthouse where you can go down and check the records or check the newspapers to see if X thing happened on Y date. You know, that it's just not, and again, that's not to say that they don't care about dates. They actually do care quite a bit about dates. They just don't think about them the way that we do. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it, it, again, I know from teaching and from having these conversations in church, in church contexts and in, uh, you know, study group contexts that when people say, well, when they hear some scholars say something like, well, they don't actually care about historical accuracy the way that we do. You know, I can, I can, I know the pious person sometimes is rolling their eyes like, Oh, he's going to give us a scholarly thing now about how we don't know what we're talking about. And this, and it, but from that, you know, my perspective, if you actually care about what the text cares about, they're telling, they tell you outright, they, they're not trying to do that. They they're outright tell you what we want to do is make you believe in Jesus. It is propaganda. They're not hiding it at all. They're telling you, this is my purpose, to make you believe. Uh, so, it, you know, I think, 
I think one of the problems is that really fundamentalist approaches to the text don't take that seriously, ironically enough. Under the banner of caring about the text more than anyone else, they actually run roughshod over what the text is actually telling you it cares about um, because it doesn't line up. So oftentimes you, you have people who are you know, over here playing spades, and in reality the text is playing Texas Hold'em. And and yeah. and and it, and you just it, it it it's just a matter of ask. They're ask the questions come back to Chris' original thing. The questions that emerge out of this is because you don't realize the text is playing the game that it's actually playing. And and to some extent that's understandable because not everybody gets the opportunity to study these texts in depth. But if you actually do care about the text, this is what the text cares about. So one of the things that has been interesting to me lately is I feel like when I first was really learning about how to read and study scripture, I was always taught to look at kind of the immediate context to understand what it was saying. So it's like, okay, in this story, Jesus is talking to a Pharisee. So how did a Pharisee function during the time of Jesus, et cetera? But I've learned recently too how important the context of the community the gospel was written within and to is like John 12, you have this story about how people didn't want to say they believed in Jesus because they would get kicked out of the synagogue. And it's like, well, that wasn't really happening while Jesus was there, but that was definitely happening to followers of Jesus later when the gospel of John would have been written. So I guess my question is how, how does that kind of shape our understanding of what we're reading in the Gospels when we think about what was going on in the communities after Jesus when the Gospels were written? Yeah, that's a really good question, Chris. And it's a difficult one to answer because by and large, what we know about those communities are only what we read in the text. So we, we are constantly imagining these communities on the basis of what the text is saying. Um, so this is a classic example, John 9, the, the Apasunagogos uh, passages, where the, you know, the assumption, that's, that's a, a theory that goes back to J. Louis Martin, uh, that, you know, that no one was getting kicked out of synagogues at the time of Jesus. It's actually recently been challenged pretty well by a guy by the name of Jonathan Bernier, uh, who says, uh, you know, well, there may very well have been some conflict in the synagogue at the time of Jesus. Uh, or at least, you know, uh, most scholars are comfortable saying that there was controversy in the synagogues with Paul before John was written. Uh, so uh, so part of, part of the reason that I'm bringing up that this has actually been challenged is because the way scholars and readers in general think about these things is, is kind of, it's, it's a constant ebb and flow where trends come in and trends go out. And, um, and it's, what I'm trying to say is what we think about the communities that read the gospels are really, really, it's really, really important because it changes the way you read the text. At the same time, we know virtually nothing about those communities outside the text itself. So it kind of becomes this like, uh, 
you know, this battery exchange where you're you're thinking you're reading the commu- you're reading the text in light of the community, but you're also reading the community in light of the text. And this was something that was really, really brilliant about I don't know if you remember, Chris, when when you had me, but uh, in in class, the, you know, the form critics really maximized this idea um, the, to, to the benefit of their theory. Um, uh, and, and it's something that every gospel reader has to, has to wrestle with. Um, but it's hard, it's hard to answer that question directly because we just know so little. Okay, so then this is why I even asked that question. So... Did that was that a disappointing answer? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, maybe, that's Chris's way of saying that was disappointing. <laughs> I was aiming uh, for a <clears throat> better question. Yeah. Well, part of the reason I asked that question is because if I'm 100% honest, um I feel like I don't have I still don't really understand what social memory theory actually means, which is where I'm getting to, but I, I was also asking is that part of it that the the idea that the go- as the gospels are written these stories are re- the way these stories are remembered are influenced just as much by what the people are going through at the time the stories are written down as when those stories actually took place well even better let me ask you something how could it be otherwise exactly you you can't think about the past in any position other than the one that you stand in when you're doing it. So the you know the whole again the, the this is another reason I think the author of the Gospel of John is is really is one of the more sophisticated early Christian writers to think about this. If Christians are the right term, the earliest Jesus followers who write about his life is. You know, he tells you where I'm standing. I'm writing this text from where I stand now. Where I stand now is not where I stood when all of this supposed, you know, happened. So he's telling you that my current my current position impacts what I say. And in fact, I know better now than I knew then. And that, but that's not that's not unique to the gospels. That's the same for everybody. You know, I, I use when I would teach this stuff in class, I always use the example of a breakup. You know, that uh, if you've ever been in a really bad relationship or had a friend who was, uh, and, you know, you tell them, hey, I don't think that person's exactly right for you, you know, and you get, and, and at the time they think it's still going to turn the corner, it's going to work out well, and they're like, oh, you don't understand, you know, they did this the other day, I know, I know you saw them, you know, with a short temper, but, you know, that was, they were just having a bad day, and they did this thing, let me tell you about that other thing that they did, really, they're a great person, and then inevitably what happens is, you know, the whole thing blows up. And then everybody's looking at you like, hey, you know, we told you that it was really bad. You're like, yeah, I know, I was an idiot. Uh, what changed? Did 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 what was actually happening change? No, your perspective on it, the position from which you remembered all that changed. And so, uh, you know, of course, it's not it's not just that it's an important component of how people, individuals, or groups remember. It's that it's the only way they remember. You can't remember otherwise. You don't get some uh, objective, you know, disembodied access to the past. We can only remember as human beings, and as ha- human beings, we can only be socio socio historically located. There's no other way to do it. It's it's a, it's it's the historiographical version of the uh com the the same conversation about linguistics and interpretation. You know. Uh, 
when we translate texts and stuff like that, yes, of course, some meaning gets lost, but it's also the only means by which any of it gets through. Right. So maybe to sum up what you're saying, at least what I'm kind of hearing, is like um, you can really only process the past based on where you're standing now. So like had a gospel writer like literally had parchment out in front of them and like just writing things down as they were happening in the moment, they would read a lot differently than what we actually have, which is people from a different point in the future or after the events kind of looking backwards. And obviously, at that point, they already know how the story ends, and that influences how they write the beginning. Is that kind of a good summation of what you're saying? Well, it is is definitely the case that when they come to put the gospel narratives on parchment or papyrus, they write the story they write the story from having known how it already ends. De- that is definitely the case, and they make no bones about this fact. They're very clear that, that this is the case. Um, but going back to your example, even if, and by the way, there is absolutely zero evidence whatsoever. People still kind of bandy this idea about. Uh, there's no evidence whatsoever that any of Jesus' disciples walked around like with notebooks, taking notes on what he was doing. But even, right, if, right. even if they did, even if they did, it would not have changed the fact that whatever got written down and whatever they processed and heard would have been necessarily impacted by their own socio-historical location. In other words, who they are. They can only understand what was happening as themselves, right? Uh, yep. So when Jesus says something like, blessed are the poor, all right, well— if you had one of Jesus' disciples standing there taking notes, if they were literate enough to do so, which I don't think they would have been, but if had they been, um, and that person was a fairly well-off person, uh, there's a scholarly or there's a early church tradition that um, or a scholarly idea that the author of the Gospel of Matthew was a scribe, a converted scribe. All right, and m- many scribes were toward the middle or the top end of the social heap. Uh, they weren't the poorest of the poor. All right. If you were a scribe who'd been fairly well off and didn't know what it was like to have a hungry belly, and you heard Jesus say, blessed are the poor, you're going to process that one way. If you are a uh, completely down and out, I have nowhere else to go, demoniac who lives among the tombs, or um, a woman with a bleeding issue that is, you know, is an an outcast of society and everything, and you hear Jesus say, blessed are, blessed are the down and out people, then you're going to process that completely different than a scribe would process that. So even if they were standing right there next to them, they, what we would have access to are only what they thought about. Despite what my grandmother, God bless her soul, thought, the, the Bible didn't actually just drop out of the sky. Right. To um, maybe like help me put like a modern illustration on it. it. Would it would it be fair to say that what the gospel writers were doing in looking back on the past through their present moment be similar to how like today we make bio pictures or TV shows based on real historical events, but they're written 20, 30, 40 years later and they're using themes that are that speak to a modern audience like people versus oj simpson or like 
a World War II movie that's made in 2018 <laughs> that... Amy Oliver Stone likes. movie. Right. So is that like a fair illustration? Yeah, the illustration that I use, I think I might have even used it in print, is is the the late 70s, early 80s TV show MASH. You know, I'll often say, what, what war is that movie? What war is that TV show about? Go ahead, play along with it. What's, what war is that show about? Honestly, I've never seen it. I've never seen so it either. All right. Sorry. Well, the, 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 the show, the show is, is technically about the Korean War in the 1950s. It's a medical unit in the 1950s, right? But it was being aired in the midst of the Vietnam War. And so that show, when you ask people what, sh- what war is this show about, like if I ask any given audience of people at least my age or above, it'll be split. You know, some people will be like Vietnam and some people will be like, oh, it's the Korean War. And the answer to, is yes to both. It is, is, is on the surface level, it's about the, war, the Korean War, but it's actually a story about the past that's intended to speak to the present. Right. right. Like all good art can have aspects of social commentary, even if they're set in the past or even the future, like Star Trek. It's actually about the present moment in which it was written. And it's hard for us going back and watching MASH or Star Trek from the 60s, the original, and really under, fully understanding what it means to see all of those you know, nationalities represented and even women on the bridge in, in positions of leadership because now it's like, yeah, we see that every day. But then it was like revolutionary. Yeah, and it, it, it often only comes becomes obvious when, you know, it's thrown in your face. You know, like when you look in an old movie and you see the way that they, or you look at, for example, like the way Rembrandt paints biblical imagery and they're all wearing clothes that would have been popular at the time of Rembrandt. That's not right. the way they dressed in the first century, Right. So he's painting a picture of the past, but he necessarily thinks about it in his own terms. Or for, there's this fascinating example that for me is just kind of funny. Whenever people make movies about ancient Rome, what accent do the Romans always have? It's British. Right. They always have British accents. As if they spoke with British accents. <laughs> they didn't speak with British accents. But for some reason in our modern context... It's like, you know, I guess people associate Brits with classical learning or something like that. So if they're supposed to be a Latin speaking environment, I don't know. I'm I'm taking a guess here. But it is often the case um, that Romans portrayed in film have British accents. And it's a strange thing, you know, where for some reason that's just how the modern context imagines ancient Romans. But it's not the way ancient Romans actually sounded. So Gerard Butler wasn't actually Roman? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So we're going to stop the conversation right there, actually. And as we were uh, editing this episode, we decided that we should break this into two parts. It it got a little long. And so we're going to stop right there and uh, next week you can check out part two and uh, in this first one we we discussed a lot about why this is a problematic question and next week we're going to to take it a step further and you're not going to want to miss that so thank you so much for listening and for watching and uh, as always you can uh, like our uh, social media posts share comment we'd love to see that 
And uh, you can leave a review on your podcast app. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. And uh, we'd love to and appreciate your support. We'd love to have your support. And we appreciate uh, your support and the fact that you watch and listen. We could not do this without you. So thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.